about the risks of true discipleship. The risk of true discipleship. There was a young lady named Bethany Hamilton who was a very talented surfer. In fact, she was, she was so good that at the age of 13, she already had a sponsor for her surfing, which is pretty amazing at 13 years old. But one beautiful day in October off the coast of Hawaii, something very unexpected happened to Bethany. She was lying on her board waiting for the next wave. Her right hand balanced on the board, and her left hand, she was paddling the board. And suddenly there was a, there was a flash of gray, and Bethany felt some tugging and some pressure on her arm. And what had happened, a 15-foot tiger shark had attacked her, not only taking a bite out of the board, but it also took her entire left arm. Somehow, she managed to stay calm. I'm not sure how that happened. And over the next 15 minutes, she paddled herself back to the shore, which was about a quarter of a mile away. Miraculously, she did not feel any pain at first, but there was an awful lot of blood. As soon as her friends on the shore saw her, they ran to her, they, they tied a shirt around her arm, what was left of it, and called for help. And at that point, she started going in and out of consciousness. And the pain at that point became severe. When the paramedics, EMTs arrived, Bethany says she rem remembers one paramedic who spoke softly to her and held her hand, and he whispered, God will never leave you or forsake you. And she said she held on to that promise during the rough months of recovery that followed that attack. Of course, because of these events, she was tempted to give up on surfing. After all, how could anybody risk going back into the water after experiencing something like that, right? And besides, a surfer needs two arms, not only to push up into a standing position from lying down, but also to maintain balance. But after one failed attempt to get back on the surfboard, in 2004, Bethany went on a missions trip to Thailand with her church youth group. And she did this after a devastating tsunami, one with waves up to 100 feet high. Think about that for a minute. 100 foot high waves had hit that country, killing over 225,000 people. The devastation she saw in Thailand kind of reoriented her thinking. While she was there, she was presented with an opportunity to help some young people overcome their fear of the ocean by taking a risk and getting back out there herself. That faith-driven risk not only bore much fruit for the kingdom of God with those young people, it also gave Bethany a new sense of purpose even in the middle of, of unspeakable suffering. In 2004, she wrote a book titled Soul Surfer, a true story of faith, family, and fighting to get back on the board. Then in, 2000, in 2011, the movie Soul Surfer was released into theaters. I say that to say this, with that story of, of modern-day story of loss and the courage to take risk in mind, I want us to consider that all through the New Testament, we as modern-day disciples are encouraged by the stories of early Christians to take risks, let Jesus into our lives so that we can accomplish what he has called us to do. When it comes to risks, there are actually people in the world who have devoted their careers to the practice of, mis of risk management. They are called actuaries. And most often they are employed by insurance companies to determine the, the, the risk level of insuring a, a person or a company. In other words, it is up to them to decide, is it worth it in the long run? Is it worth the risk to step out and insure this person or this company? As it is for insurance companies, as it was for Bethany Hamilton, and as it was for countless people we read about in the Word of God, there are times in our own lives when we too are called or will be called to take a risk. 
When it comes to taking risk in the context of our faith, we can't manage, we can't control, and we can't determine the outcome of those risks. In reality, the only thing that we can really manage is our expectations. Jesus was never ambiguous or, or vague about the possible risk and losses that people could face if they chose to follow him. He, in fact, he told his followers, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We talked about this Wednesday night in our Bible study, that very scripture. Jesus was very clear that there will be some risk involved. There will be some, some following. There will be some effort that will have to be put in if we choose to follow him. Taking risk and experiencing loss for the sake of Christ is part of the deal when it comes to following Jesus. Oh, I don't know if I like that. Doesn't matter. The Bible's real clear that that's just the way it is. There will be risk. There will be effort. John 15, 18 said, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. So if we wonder, why do people hate me because I'm a Christian? Well, Jesus pretty well covered it there. If the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. In 1 John 3, 13, it says, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. And that doesn't mean we go around acting like jerks and then feel like sorry for ourselves because somebody hates us. No, I'm talking about when we take a risk and we step out in our faith and we step out to share the gospel and we do exactly what God is calling us to do, we can't worry about what anybody else thinks. It is clear that there are risks involved. So we see that there is not only a chance that there will be risk as a Christian, it's something that we should pretty much expect. We might not want to be risk takers and and the risk of being persecuted are not the only risks that we might take as Christians. But fear of taking risk can often stop us from following the leading of the Spirit. It can stop us from doing those things that God has called us to do. We might fail to confront a friend's self-destructive behavior out of fear that they might stop talking to us. Well, I know they're doing wrong, and I know it goes against the Bible, and I know it's probably going to destroy their entire life and maybe their entire family, but I don't want them mad at me. Sometimes there's a risk involved. Or we hold back on exercising our spiritual gifts out of fear that it might cause an embarrassing moment or two. Things like the word of knowledge, word of wisdom, gift of prophecy, gift of faith, the gift of healing, the working of miracles, the discerning of spirits, the different kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. And the list goes on and on. There's a lot of different things that people go, well, I don't think I want to step out because I might look silly. If God is calling you to step out and do that, then do it. You don't have to worry about it if God is telling you to do it. I would also say those gifts that we just saw are not just, they were not just given to the early church. They are for us today as well. And I believe that far too many times we don't want to take the risk that are involved by stepping out and exercising those gifts. You know what we need to see in our churches today? We need to see people exercising those gifts. It's true anyway. What we need to see in our churches today are people exercising those gifts. There is nothing in the Bible that says all that stuff ceased. Well, I just don't feel comfortable. There we go again. It's not about comfort. Let me tell you what comfort brings. Very little. There is very little success, maybe no success, that comes from a place of comfort. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to find the courage to extend ourselves a little and do things and venture into places and experiences that we would have never gone on our own. You know what the difference is? We're going with the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're not going alone. When we exercise these gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us as modern-day Christians, we are not doing it on our own. And if you do, you're wrong. These are gifts of the Spirit. 
Well, I've never heard you talk like that. Well, I'll take the blame for that. But I have. Now let's go to our scripture text. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So in Mark 11, the writer begins this story. This is actually the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And on the first day of these, these seven days, Jesus has complete knowledge of the nature and the exact timing of his death. He knows exactly what's getting, getting ready to happen. He knows that on this particular day, he will be entering into the city hailed as this triumphant political messiah, at least in the eyes of, of the multitude. But he also knows that by the end of the week, he will be hanging on a cross rejected by most of those same people, the very people he loved and came to save. Then as we read through Mark chapter 11, it becomes clear that even Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, had not really grasped what his mission was when he came to earth. Even so, he continues to, to draw them in, to get them to participate in the preparation for what he's going to do, his sacrifice. On this day, Jesus knows that his, his, um, he will be fulfilling a prophecy found all the way back in the Old Testament in Zechariah 9.9 that said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and watch this, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a prophecy from hundreds of years before. And what's happening? Jesus just sent two disciples to get what? A donkey, a colt. This text in Mark does not give us the name of the two disciples that Jesus sent to get this young donkey. So it's possible that these two disciples were not uh, counted among the 12, but instead maybe just a, a part of a larger group of disciples who followed Jesus. In any case, Jesus knew what these two disciples, these two followers would encounter once they got to the village. He said, you'll find a colt, one that had never been written, ridden, and you simply were to take the colt. And if anyone confronts you, you let those people know that Jesus needs this colt. And we'll bring it back later today. So even though there was a certain amount of risk involved in going to town, finding a colt, a specific colt that Jesus spoke of, and then taking said colt, these disciples showed no apparent questioning or resistance to Jesus' command. They just went to the village and did what he told them. In spite of the potential risk, and we see that the risk involved in being obedient to Jesus, even in that day, it could vary. So our risk will not always be the same. The risk that God calls me to will not be the same as yours, and the risk that God calls you to might not be the same as mine. I'm going to tie my shoes before I fall down. Something very spiritual here. On a side note. It is significant that Mark mentions that it was a colt which never, no one had ever ridden. You say, well, why is that such a big deal? It didn't mean that this was an, an unbroken or difficult-to-ride colt like we picture in, in, as unbroken in cowboy movies. Instead, the mention of this detail has to do with Jesus' honor. Again, we're fulfilling a prophecy from hundreds of years before. The honor being that this colt was not just a common colt. It was one reserved for someone special. In addition, Jewish tradition said that no one may use an animal on which a king rides so that we see all these details falling into place, pointing to who Jesus really was. How cool is that? Prophecy from hundreds of years before. Prophecy that said he would be the Messiah, that he would be the king of kings. Now he has sent these two disciples into town and said, find that colt that no one has ridden on and bring him back. Why? Because that is the only colt that a king could ride on. You tell me God doesn't have the details of your life under control? 
You're worried about what's happening in your life right now? When hundreds of years have gone by from a prophecy and Jesus knew exactly, he said, go get that colt. And he said, by the way, when you get there, they're going to ask you, what are you going to do with it? And you're going to say, Jesus needs it. Let's go on. Mark 11, chapter, chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied it, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, here we go, some people standing there ask, what are you doing? Untying that colt. It'd be kind of like you look in a neighbor's yard and you see somebody stealing their car. Right? What are you doing? That's my neighbor's car. They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Everything that Jesus predicted about the disciples' mission happened. They found the colt and they untied it. While they were untying it, the neighbors came out and they were approached by some people. Most likely these people were neighbors that lived in the village. They knew the owner of the, the colt. And they would have probably presumed that these guys were trying to steal this colt. But here is, again, one of the many, many cool parts of this story. When the disciples told them that Jesus needs this colt, they didn't offer any resistance. It was kind of like, oh, really? Jesus needs this colt? Why did you say that? No problem. Just go ahead and take it. You're going to bring it back when? This afternoon? No problem. We'll see you this afternoon. It's likely that these people either knew, had heard of, or had experienced the miracles that Jesus had performed. And as a result, they felt honored that such a celebrated figure was in need of something from their little town. And they felt honored that somebody like Jesus needed their neighbor's colt. Sure, go ahead and take it. So while there was risk involved for these two disciples to walk into town, find this specific donkey, untie it and take it to Jesus, Jesus already knew the outcome before he sent them. Was there a risk involved? Yes. But Jesus knew the outcome. So was there really a risk involved? He knew it was all part of a plan that had been foreordained by, foreordained by God and prophesied hundreds of years before. So when he sent them to do it, he knew what was going to happen, and he knew they were going to be just fine. How many times do we go into something in life and we are scared to death because we think God doesn't know how it's going to work out? Really? Really? He knows the end from the beginning. We are stepping out. The risk that we feel is in our own heart because we don't know the end. But we can be confident that God knows the end. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Y'all might as well get excited. I'm not done. I want to make sure we grasp all of this before we move on. God had long foreordained the events that would take place that day. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he carefully obeyed what had been foretold so that the people could and would recognize him as the Messiah that was prophesied. Here's another note, the thing that I want you to note. It was not a long walk from Bethphage to Jerusalem. And without a doubt, Jesus had made that trip by foot many, many times. But this time, Jesus came into Jerusalem in the exact way the prophet said he would come into town. It was a short walk. He could have just said, I know the prophets wrote that, but it's not that far. I'll just walk. No, that wasn't what the prophets said. 
And too many times I think when God tells us, this is what you need to do, "Ah, it's not that big a deal, I'll just do it my way. And we go ahead and do it our way, and then we wonder, why didn't it work out? Because we did it our way. This plan had been around for hundreds of years. Who did Jesus think he would be to just decide to change the plan? And who do we think we are when God knew what was next in your life before the creation of the world? Think about that. He knew what was next in your life before he created the world. He knows the end from the beginning. That's what the Bible says. And if he knows that, he knows what's next in your life. He knew about it before he created the world. So why are we afraid? So we read these accounts. The account of these events. We read that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt like prophecy had said. And many of those who watched threw their cloaks in the road so the donkey would pass over them. Others took palm branches down and threw it on the ground. And the palm branch represented a, it was a symbol of triumph or victory and celebration in Jewish tradition. So at this point, we see the crowds were in complete support of Jesus. In fact, they were in support of him to the point to where they were giving him the same honor that they would bestow on a king. Unfortunately... We know these signs of honor were very short-lived for most of the people in that crowd because in less than a week, they were a lot of the same ones that were yelling, crucify him. Mark chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. Let's keep going. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The cries from the crowd were actually a, a prophecy from Psalm 118, 25, and 26 that said this exact same thing. And it was something that was, was widely held by the Jews of that day as a, a messianic proclamation. It is important to point out that these events in Mark 11 were all taking place during the Passover week. The Passover being the time when they celebrated their deliverance from oppression of the Egyptians, way, way back in the Old Testament with Moses. And there were probably a lot of people who hoped that this Messiah, this, this Jesus person, would deliver them from their current oppressor, the Romans, in the same way that Moses had delivered the people from the Egyptians. But unlike Moses... They did not expect or even really want this Messiah to deliver them peacefully. Moses did not fight a battle. In fact, he got to a a point where things happened so bad that the Pharaoh said, please, take your people and leave. Just go. I don't want to see you anymore. Go away. So that was a peaceful departure. But these people really didn't want a peaceful departure from the Romans. Instead, they wanted a military revolution, one that would completely destroy and obliterate the Romans, a revolution that would bring deliverance by the tip of the sword. They wanted Jesus, this Messiah, when he talked about delivering them, they wanted him to deliver them from the Romans, but to kill all the Romans. So it seemed they were supporting Jesus, but in reality, they weren't supporting Jesus for who he really was. They weren't supporting his teaching. Instead, they were hoping he was going to do something for them. That's a whole other sermon. Do something for them, not deliver them from a life of sin. Instead, they wanted him to deliver them from the Roman government because they hated him. Why are we following Jesus? Are we following Jesus because we want something from him? Are we following Jesus because of what he's already done? He has saved us. He has forgiven our sins. He has been our provider. He is our salvation. 
He is our hope. And yet there are people that come to him for no other reason than these people in Jesus' day of, I'll follow you because I want you to do something for me. Think of what he's already done. Earlier in his ministry, we read that Jesus didn't really want to be identified as the Messiah. He knew that if that happened, that people would probably identify him as a conquering king, which is exactly what they were doing here. They weren't identifying him as a savior of their sins. He, they were identifying him as a savior from the Romans. For Jesus, it was all about timing. Earlier in his ministry, when he would heal somebody, he would usually tell them, now go and don't tell anybody what happened here. Didn't always happen, but he told them that. But things were different now. Because this was the last week that he was on earth. And this, all the events of this last week were now being played out. The time had come for people to make their own conclusion about him. And I will tell you, the time has come for a lot of folks to make their conclusion about Jesus today. Yes, Jesus was a conquering king. But he wasn't there to conquer the Roman government. He came to conquer. Not a government. He came to conquer the very sins that enslaved these people to their old nature. When we talk about risk, please know that I am saying that we should go out and take risk just for the, the sake of taking a risk. I'm not saying that at all. Please listen to me. And I'm certainly not talking about doing silly things like handling snakes to show how godly you are. Y'all know that's not me. Because that's not godly. That's just dumb. Instead, what I'm talking about here are faith-driven risks. Especially those things that are often associated with the spreading of the gospel. If there is a call to go do something and there's a risk involved in it, it involves spreading the gospel, it's probably from God. A risk involves a certain amount of faith and faith involves a certain amount of risk. Let me say that again. A risk involves a certain amount of faith, and faith involves a certain amount of risk. In fact, the willingness to take a risk is the evidence of faith. The fact that you're willing to step out beyond what you know you're capable of doing on your own is an evidence that you have faith that God is able to keep you as you do that. If we did not believe that God was able, why would we ever step out and take a risk, a faith-based risk? The two, two men who went to get this donkey, they took a risk, but they obviously had enough faith that if Jesus said to go do it, they would do it, believing that it was their part in a bigger story, and because of their faith, two guys who were never even named in the Bible. Because of their faith, prophecy from hundreds of years before was fulfilled through them. And we don't even know their names. Did they know all the details at the time that Jesus sent them? Probably not. In fact, I'm just going to step out here and say absolutely not. I don't think Jesus sat down and explained it all to them. He just said, go do this, this, and this. This is what's going to happen. This is what you need to say. And then come back. But here's why I believe they were able to do it. They had probably seen Jesus do enough miracles that they knew if he said it, it would be exactly the way he said when he saw a blind man and asked, do you want, to, do you want your sight back? And he said, yes. And, and Jesus said, well, I can do that. And he spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it in the guy's eyes. The guy gets back his sight. They see a lame man who can't walk. And the guy says, I, I want to be healed. Do you want to be healed? Okay, so raise up, grab your bed there and go home. And the man stood up, picked up his bed, and went home. You see, they believed that if Jesus said it, it was going to happen. And these two disciples said, you know what? 
Why would he change now? And sometimes when we face some difficult things, we need to think back to all the times when God answered our prayer, when we saw miracles happen. And in this case, we just say, why would I be afraid? God has done everything he said up to this time. I'm just going to go do what he said. If we are sure that we are following God as he leads us, and if we are sure that it is something that will bring him glory, then we can say with confidence, Lord, you know what? I don't see the big picture here. I, I'm, I'm not seeing all the details here. And I don't know how you're going to do this, but I know you're leading me. So here we go. You go, is it that simple? Yeah, it really is. You don't need to stop and think about it? No. You don't. If God said it, what do I need to think about it? Am I going to come up with a better plan? If God said it, and I know God said it, why do I need to go talk to somebody else? They have better ideas than God? No, if God said it, then I'm going to go do it, and I'm just going to believe, you know what, he's going to go with me. Why? Because he has always gone with me. Faith doesn't see the end at the time we step out. Because if it did, it wouldn't be faith. So that means there will always be a certain amount of risk involved in stepping out in faith. When I walk over here and I step down like this, I didn't look down. You know why? Because that step's always been there. And I believe when I step down that time, it's going to be there again. And when I take the next step, that one's going to be there. And when I take the next step, the floor is going to be there. You know why? It's always been there. That's faith. Is there a risk involved? Yeah, somebody could have come along while I was up here and taken away these steps. If God says it, you can believe it. When Moses led the Israelites out of, of Egypt, we talked about that a little bit ago. After they got out of Egypt, they found themselves at one point with the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's army behind them. He had told them, please go, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Go away, go away. But then once they left, he kind of changed his mind and he sent an army after him. Liar. So here they are with the Red Sea in front of them, an army coming up behind them. And God told Moses, stretch out your staff the one that's in your hand. And I'm going to divide the water that's in front of you. That Red Sea there, I'm going to divide the water and you're going to walk across on dry land. No risk there, right? Well, you know, God, I, oof, I don't know how to say this. I realize we're in trouble here, but these people are pretty mad at me right now. In fact, they're about ready to kill me. Isn't that a little risky to say, hey, everybody, hold on a minute. I'm going to stretch out this staff in my hand, and the water's going to part, and we're going to walk across on dry land. That's a little risky, God. I mean, it makes no sense, and if it doesn't work out, I'm going to look pretty stupid. Maybe... Maybe, maybe you could give me a little preview before I tell everybody else. You know, I just step over here and just kind of do this. And you... No, that is not what happened. In spite of the risks that were involved, Moses was obedient, and the result was that the Israelites were del delivered and their enemy was destroyed. Why was Moses willing to step out and take the risk? Because he had seen what God did back in Egypt. He had faith because he had seen what God already did. When you are facing something difficult, when you come to a place in the month where you are out of money and the bills are still piled up there and you say, I don't know how I'm going to do this. When you have a sickness and you say, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And you say, what am I going to do? 
Look back to where God has brought you from. Look back to all the times that God has answered prayer and say, I don't know how, I don't know when, but God, I will trust you and I will go forward. We don't have because we don't have faith. I am not turned into some name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it kind of preacher. That's not what I'm saying. But I believe that we have been living way too far below our privileges as children of God. We talk about faith. We talk about trusting God. And then when it comes time to do it, we go, well, I just don't know. What don't you know? Do you have a better plan? God could have looked at Moses if he would have said that and said, I'll tell you what, dude, you got a better plan. I'll just go over here and watch. Because I know mine's going to work. But you just go ahead and see what you can come up with. You know what would have happened? They would have had two options at that point. They would have either gone into the water and drowned, or they would have been destroyed by the army. There would have been no deliverance, because there is no deliverance without obedience. Now, again, follow me for a moment, because I really want to make sure we're getting this. Most of our aversion to faith-driven risk are likely related to how we've reacted to losses in our life. Watch this. Losses that were caused by our own mistakes, maybe losses caused by the indifference, the negligence, or even the malice of others. Some people have experienced losses so devastating that they vow to never make themselves vulnerable again, and as a result, they wrap themselves up in a protective cocoon, refusing to emerge from it with when the, even the slightest, tiny little bit of risk is present. They get hurt in a relationship, and their solution is, well, I'm never going to love anybody again. They get hurt by a fellow Christian. They say, well, I'm just going to quit living for God. I'm just never going to go to church again because some Christian hurt me. Really? Did God do that? Or some silly little Christian? Another side of taking risk is the thought process of, I tried to step out and doing something, but I really wasn't comfortable with doing it. And in the end, it really didn't go all super fantastic. I'm never going to try that again. I remember the first time I sat down at the piano to lead a worship service. There was an upright piano right there. And I sat there, and I was already out of college, so I kind of knew how to play. And I will tell you that as I sat there, this is no lie, and I still remember it because it made such an impact. As I sat there playing and trying to lead the service, I could literally feel the sweat dripping down my back, under my arms, all across the front. The waistband of my pants was soaking wet. I was so nervous. And you know what? It wasn't good. Not in the least. And at that point, I could have said, well, you know what, God, I know you called me to, to, to be a worship leader, but, you know, I did it that one time, and it was kind of not good. So I think I'm going to move on to something else. The first time I ever stood up to, to preach, and I had taught Sunday school, I had led the youth group, but the first time I actually stood up here to preach, when Brother Magine, Pastor Magine was a pastor here, once again, that same feeling, sweat, waistband of my pants down about that far, just soaking wet. Felt like I was out digging a ditch. Words didn't come out right. And it wasn't good. And at that point, I could have said, well, you know what? Maybe I was just called to do music. I'll go back to do that one again. But it wasn't what God was calling me to do. Yes, I could have stayed doing that and, and could have justified it by saying, but I'm doing, I'm doing worship now. I'm leading worship because I'm a little bit more comfortable with that. So why would I want to move to something else? Because comfort isn't always the answer to if we're doing what God called us to do. 
So how do we overcome that? To overcome those feelings, we, we do the work of risk management. We become actuaries. We come face-to-face with our biggest losses. We grieve them, we move on, and then we move forward. And perhaps we'll look back at some point and see how God worked through what we did to reveal something about himself or something about ourselves that we would have never seen otherwise. Had I not got back to the piano that second time, I would have never seen what God could do through music ministry. Had I not stood here when Pastor Magine was out of town and asked me to stand up here for the first time, I would have never become the pastor of High Point Church. I would have made some people happy, but it wouldn't have been what God called me to do. Maybe it didn't go as we expected. But if we were trusting and following God, I can tell you it went exactly the way he expected. The Apostle Paul, he risked some jail time by spreading the gospel. You know what happened to him? He went to jail. I'm going to step out here, God, knowing that I could go to jail, but I'm going to preach the gospel anyway. Hands behind your back. You're going to jail. Um, I knew it was a possibility. I just didn't think it was going to happen. Maybe it doesn't go the way we expected, but it went exactly the way he expected. So Paul spent some time in jail, but because he took risk, wonderful things happened for Christ that are still affecting the world today. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. You know where he was when he wrote most of that? In prison. The insight that he had by sitting in a prison cell gave him tremendous faith to know what God could do even though you're sitting in prison. And we have those books today. Risk result in change through choice. Time after time, Jesus explained to his followers the risks that were associated with following him. To the crowds in the text that we read today, Jesus was very little more than a visiting celebrity, the fulfillment of their hopes for freedom from the Romans. They didn't care who Jesus was as a savior. To them, it wasn't about Jesus' teaching. It was about them and their freedom from Roman rule. They did not understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus really was or what he could free them from. When he died on a cross as a common criminal, the cheering crowds were gone because casual interest fades quickly. And the only ones that were left at the foot of the cross were a handful of followers whose commitment caused them to say, I will take the risk that is involved to honor my Messiah. The 12 disciples, most of them were in hiding. Our decision to become a follower of Christ cannot be like so many try to make it to be in churches across the country. No, nothing more than the result of a, a casual interest or decision. Our decision to follow Christ must be a dedicated commitment. So many times people come to me and say, what do I need to do? And one of the first things I say is be faithful and be dedicated. Sometimes I say be faithful more than once in the conversation. The person making that commitment must be willing to say, I will be that risk taker. The one who gives the Holy Spirit permission to change my old thought patterns, my old habits, to change anything in my life that would go against what I should be as a follower of Christ. At that point, we have given up our sovereign will to God's sovereign will. Lord, I want you to control my life. We also need to be careful not to confuse our feelings 
with hearing from the Holy Spirit. Let me explain what I mean there. We see a meme. Actually, it's become more than a meme. It's a very popular tattoo with Christians these days, and it's really cool. I like it. Thought about getting it myself. And it says, faith over fear. I think it needs to have an addendum that says, faith over feelings. But too many times, we get caught up in our feelings, and we don't have any faith. And our faith goes out the window because, well, I just feel like. When Jesus sent those two disciples to get that colt, do you think he really cared how they were feeling? Well, that's pretty harsh. Hey, it was Jesus, not me. <laughs> faith over feelings. Maybe I'll get that tattoo. I want each of us to ask ourselves today, is Christ nothing more than a curiosity for me? Is Christ nothing more than a casual interest for me? Is he something that is, that is out there on the border of what really matters in my life? Or am I willing to make a total commitment, placing him as the Lord of my life, the very center of my life, and permitting his power to change me completely? And I will tell you, if we are willing to say that, and if we will do that, it might mean taking a risk to step out into places we have never been before. But I will tell you that the rewards are far greater than we could ever imagine if we would be willing to do that. Christine Kane, the founder of an organization focused on fighting human trafficking, said the following a few years ago, to a group of students at Liberty University. And I'm going to quote her. She said, Jesus did not come to earth so that Christians could live comfortable, complacent lives. God has given us gifts and talents for the purpose of serving our generation. And we as Christians should not live like everybody else because we know we are going to live forever with Jesus. She added this, in this very short amount of time called life, you and I ought to live risky lives. She went on to say, from Genesis to Revelation, never did anyone achieve things without first looking like a fool to the rest of the world. In our world of celebrity and greed, God is asking, is there a generation that is prepared to be different and foolish and not sell out? End of quote. We must get to a place in our walk with God where we realize that he will work through whatever happens when we are willing to take faith-driven risk for him. Not crazy stuff. Faith-driven risk. And I want to clarify what we're speaking of when I say faith-driven risk. Not every risk we take is faith-driven. Sometimes we just want something so badly that we risk doing it, even though it's not faith-driven. It's not for the glory of God. It's simply something we want, thinly described, disguised as I'm stepping out in faith. The deciding factor for if it's faith-driven should always be, will this result in me drawing closer to God? Secondly, do my actions glorify God? And then finally, will this clearly fulfill the calling that I have to share the gospel. There's not a single one of those that screams, me, 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 me. And I'll close with this. This church is here today because someone was willing to take a risk. There are folks here today who are living for God because someone was willing to take a risk and witness to them or at least invite them to church. What are we willing to risk today to see what God wants to accomplish through us here at High Point Church? Taking a risk might not be comfortable, but let me assure you that there are very few great things that have ever been accomplished from a place of comfort 
Abraham, Moses, Peter, Paul. So many others in the Bible were people who all accomplished great things. People who we look at and say, if, if only I could do the kind of things that they did. If that's you, listen to me today. You can do the kind of things that they did. But I want to assure you of a couple things about each of those people I mentioned. First of all, every one of them lived faith-driven lives of faith-driven risk. And over and over and over, we read that they took those faith-driven risks. Secondly, I want to remind you that every one of them had setbacks. They had failures. Or they made mistakes at one point or another. Especially Peter. But in spite of the setbacks, the failures, and the mistakes, they all continued to follow the Lord. And as a result, their risk paid off in great rewards to the kingdom of God. And if we truly want to see the same results, we too must be willing to take some risks as the Holy Spirit leads us. Would you stand this morning? If you're able, if not, it's okay. The worship team's going to sing here in a minute. As they do, I would just like whoever would, I'd like everybody, if you would, let's just come up here and spend some time in prayer. You don't have to kneel down. You can stand. You can sit in one of these chairs across the front. But I just want us to gather together as a church family and pray. And I want us to ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? Lead me. Tell me what I need to do next. And not just that, Lord, but give me the strength to step out and take that God-given, faith-driven risk for you and for your glory. Would you come and pray? It's